Hello everybody, Andrew Holacek here, and um, this particular interview is one I've been looking forward to for quite a long time. It's with a remarkable scholar, practitioner, researcher, Dr. Claire Johnson, who's really one of the leading voices in the world of lucid dreaming. Um, and as you'll soon see from her most impressive biography, and I think even more so as we start to dive into just a tremendous array of topics, uh, we're, we're in for a treat. So uh, let me just read a little bit about who this remarkable person is. Dr. Claire Johnson was the first person in the world to do doctoral research into lucid dreaming as a creative tool. A well-known author and speaker, she recently headed up the International Association for the Study of Dreams as president and CEO. When she was three, Claire had her first lucid dream and subsequently became a lifelong frequent lucid dreamer who has researched lucid dreaming for over um, 24 years. For the past 14 years, she has taught workshops on how to ex access the deep creative and healing potential of the unconscious. And she now leads lucid dreaming retreats around um, mostly Europe. And I will have the opportunity for her to share what she's doing very specifically um, at the end of our program. But Claire is the author of a number of remarkable books. One is the acclaimed Lucid Dreaming Handbook, Llewellyn's complete book, of lucid dreaming, a comprehensive guide to promote creativity, overcome sleep disturbances, and enhance health and wellness. Um, in this in-depth book, as well as sharing many original practices for getting and staying lucid, she shares her insights into meditating and lucid dreams, encountering the lucid light and the sparkling black void, and how lucid dreaming can be a path into a luminous death. And so as a parenthetical insert here from my end, this is absolutely what I want to um, discuss at some length with her because very few people go to um, this deep end of the pool. So that's where we're going to be riffing. Um, Claire's work on lucid dreaming has been featured in numerous documentaries, magazines, radio shows, podcasts, and television. She regularly speaks at um, international venues on topics as diverse as lucid dreaming for the dying, sleep disorders, and how to overcome nightmares and release fear. Her book, Dream Therapy, Dream Your Way to Health and Happiness, explores the transformative effect that dream work can have on our lives. And her newest book is The Art of Lucid Dreaming, a super practical guide with a lucidity quiz and personalized lucidity programs tailored to each individual dreamer. And in, in addition, and I did not know this, Claire, you've written um, short stories and, and I guess a novel or two that incorporate lucid dreaming. So, yeah. um, oh, my, oh my goodness, you are living and breathing a topic that um, has been the, you know, the center of my life for, for many, many decades now. So welcome, dear friend, dear new friend. And before we get going, I, I always like to start, I suppose with you, we could say at the shallow end of the pool before we take the deeper dive. Um, maybe share with our listeners, if you will, what inspired you to devote your um, life to the study and practice of these um, nocturnal meditations, as I come to call them. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Andrew, for having me on the show. And uh, I'm really enjoying your dream yoga book, <laughs> by the way, uh, which I'm reading right now. Um, yes, yeah, so for me, this really is, as you said, it's like a lifetime path. I, I It just became my path from a very early age. Um, my first memory of my entire life uh, is of a dream where I was drowning in a swimming pool and I suddenly, I panicked, I was drowning, and I suddenly understood that I had a choice. I could either stay in that dream and drown, or I could choose to wake up. And I chose to wake up by violently 
throwing myself over and over in the swimming pool until I actually fell out of my physical bed. Um, And yeah, and my mum came running upstairs um, and she just said, oh, well, you had a bad dream. It's, it's, It's not real. It's just a dream. Go back to sleep. And that was really strange because for me that dream was super real you know the colors of the water the light coming through the water the sensation that I was going to die it was all so so strong and to hear my mum who of course knew everything because I was only three so she was like you know a goddess (laughs) uh, hearing her saying that that world was not real it really sort of impacted me very powerfully. Um, and as I continued to have very vivid dreams as I grew older, I started to understand that my parents didn't know everything about this other world. They didn't, even though they knew everything about everything else. Um, and I had to kind of, um, well, struggle through on my own, <laughs> as so many people do, but, you know, if their parents don't know much about dreams. Uh, I had to learn how to deal with nightmares. I had uh, sleepwalking episodes. Um, I also had lucid dreams, amazing lucid dreams when I was about seven or eight, where I would fly out of the house and I would meet these magical beings uh, who hid in the hedge at the bottom of the garden and they would teach me magic from very old books. Um, so I would have dream experiences like that. And I imagine, you know, I'd, I would tell my mum and dad the next day, they were just like, yeah, all right, darling, you know, <laughs> she's a bit eccentric, they think to themselves. And um, so I kind of, I never kind of was able to discuss it with anyone. So it was quite isolating on one, one level, but on, on another level, it was brilliant because it meant that I had to explore for myself and I had to by trial and error, work out how this other world worked. Um, And my dreams were very, very conscious a lot of the time. Um, And I I had to work out uh, how to deal with my nightmares and so on. And when I went to university, I was having a lot of sleep paralysis. And, you know, I hadn't read a single book on dreams at that age. I didn't know really what was happening, why I was um, kind of stuck in this strange space, um, being spun around in in black space. You know, what's going on? I had no idea. But I basically I taught myself to not struggle in that state and to release my fear. And I realized the only thing I could really control was my breath. So I started to do really deep, relaxing breathing whenever I was in sleep paralysis. And that would take me into a beautiful, lucid dream. So that's when I learned to really kind of um, have lucid dreams at will uh, through the state of uh, sleep paralysis. So basically, all of those experiences meant that uh, I've also taken the path of kind of, I want to find out things for myself. You know, I'm not going to follow a particular uh, tradition. I I love and respect all sorts of different uh, traditions when it comes to, yeah, any type of uh, yoga, dreaming, things like that. But um, I've always been determined to find out for myself, I think, because of my early experience with my with my parents. Um, And that has been very, very interesting, you know, to take a little bit from here and there and read widely. But then to say, right, I'm going to go into my dreams and find out for myself. What is the nature of consciousness? What happens when we die? How deep can we go? And what is the base of everything in reality? You know, and you can find out answers, you know, some answers <laughs> to these questions uh, through a practice of deep lucid dreaming. Oh, my gosh, Claire, I can't tell you. I mean, it's like music to my ears. You're like recapitulating <laughs> my, my own biography. And, and, and if you don't mind, a couple of things ping, 
pinged into my awareness around this is one is, you know, uh, um, the work of Diogenes and what he refers to as the absurdity of conformity um, mm-hmm. and, how, and how it is that exactly like you say, and, and I, I, I sometimes reference, I'm sure you've read the book of Charles um, Laughlin, Communing with the Gods, where he, he makes this really compelling uh, assertion that, you know, outside of Western European cultures, there are some 4,000 cultures worldwide and around 90% of those are what he refers to as, you know, these polyphasic, polyphasic cultures, cultures that adhere to altered states of consciousness and the validity of exploring things like lucid dreaming yeah. and so-called altered states. Um, and so what it does, that what you're saying is just so spot on that we live in, in a highly wake-centric, um, and I think it's largely based um, on Eurocentricity and all yeah. in the service of egocentricity. We, we're in a certain way blinded by... Um, external light. And so there's this vast natural resource that we have that our parents, um, our culture, our society just dismisses because, you know, if we can't experience it fully, it can't be real. Well, how about perhaps it's more real? How about perhaps that just because it's subtle and nocturnal and and dark, that in fact, um, it could be exploring exactly what you're referring referring to, the origins of everything. You know, I mean, origins often Mm -hmm. arise in darkness. And so for you, it's just a complete kind of recapitulation of the whole dismissive attitude that the Western world has around um, lucid dreaming. And for you to be, you know, the intrepid pioneer that you have been and continue to be is amazing. So were you ever, Claire, when you were engaging in this? Um, I'm I'm very curious in terms of the kind of the dance between, um, uh, you know, being so excited, thrilled about exploring this unique world um, pretty much on your own, and also um, the role of fear, um, if there uh-huh. were, in fact, some experiences that weren't all just love and light, that were ex- expressions yeah. of, of shadow that also came to teach you. So talk to us a little bit about how you danced between those two extremes, we could say, the, the great excitation. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, fear, this is, uh, <laughs> this is a topic I'm also fascinated by. And in my workshops, I, I try to teach people how to release fear because I believe that fear is the biggest, uh, or it can be the biggest block when it comes to not only psychological development, but also spiritual knowledge. And I think that when we are brave and when we face the fear, Oh, there's so much to gain. I mean, I think of nightmares these days. I think of nightmares as being healing gifts. You know, we can unwrap them and get to the gift. What what is it that they're teaching us? What can we learn from them? This is a step on our path towards healing. But way back then, I mean, obviously, as a child growing up, I I had really uh, scary nightmares sometimes. Um, I remember one recurring lucid nightmare. So I was conscious in this dream, but I I didn't know about lucid dreaming. I didn't know that you can actually change things or kind of snap out of it or uh, wake yourself up if you need to. I didn't know any of that. And I had this recurring nightmare. It started off quite amazing. I climbed up to a hill, a green hill, and it was drenched in sunlight. And then I lay down on the hill and everything was wonderful. The sky was blue. And then suddenly all these power lines, these like buzzing black lines started to crisscross the sky, like really kind of vibrating with energy that scared me because it was so strong. And they crossed the sky and crossed it and crossed it until the sky was black and everything was black buzzing. 
Yeah. And and then I would scream because I was so scared. Even though I knew it was a dream, I would scream and I would try and wake myself up. Um, and I remember telling my mum about that. And I was only little. So I all I could really say was, mum, I had a dream and, and there were all these lines crossing the sky. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, all right, darling. You know, I mean, it just doesn't sound that impressive. Just, I had no way of kind of putting into words how how huge that dream was for me. And and the the massive vibration of those lines and, and the sense that I was going to lift off and be transported somewhere else and I didn't know where and there was a lot of fear. So I had to learn uh, to get through those experiences and I got used to those because they were recurring nightmares, those ones. And I, I kind of managed to stay relaxed because I knew I always wake up safely from this. I always wake up safely in my bed. Um, and then I would just have to kind of stay there and see it through. And I, I mean, I think looking back, these were just kind of pre out of body experiences because I did have out of body experiences when I was younger. And, you know, you often get that huge uh, vibration and the sense of lift off. But again, I had no idea what was going on. Um, and so that was just one example of um, of the fear that I, I sometimes experienced in, in those states. And I, I felt that I had... Um, no real help with that but the, the great thing is that then you you get to draw on your own inner resources mm. and and I found that my dreams would also be like my regular dreams would would give me such wonderful beautiful experiences that I I was never really scared to sleep it was interesting I I looked forward to it it was like going straight into a rich other world full of colors and different things and amazing people and animals you know so there were always both sides for me um, and I just had to learn to kind of brave up, really, and just and just be like, right, okay, whatever happens, I'll wake up safely. That was kind of my maxim, you know. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's that's really amazing. And you know, for me, not only as a uh, spelunker of the mind in terms of the nocturnal practices, you know, in, in my meditative path altogether, I have often used fear as one of the most powerful indicators for where one actually should go to grow. I I, I often talk yeah. about how. You know, Joseph Campbell, when he said, follow your bliss, that's there, there's some provision mm -hmm. with to that. But if you only follow your bliss, you just get blissed out. And so for me, <laughs> I, I actually find the most rewarding things I've ever done is following my fear. Um, and uh, you know, I, I've explored this in some depth, um, Claire, where, um, you know, the very origin of the word fear comes from a root that means fair as in toll. And mm -hmm. so um, it's as if it really is the kind of gauntlet that authentic deep divers of the mind and heart have to go through in order to discover reality and and I've, I've thought about this a ton and to me it's why it's super important to understand um the kind of the, the strata of mind have a really good map of the mind that we, yes we may have these intermediate bandwidths that the, the buddhist tradition refers to as the kind of the substrate um consciousness mm -hmm. Um, where the, all the refused, rejected aspects are, are spiders and snakes are hanging out. And if we just, if we get kind of deterred by the spiders and snakes at the intermediate level, we're, we're going to lose the deeper picture. And so the, yeah. complete, the complete picture, as you know, is that at the very basis, at least according to um, so-called non-dual Eastern traditions, at the very basis, the very, the true bed of mind is is perfectly pure it's divine it was what i refer to in the nocturnal practices and of course it's not my term is the clear light mind and so I, i'm riffing yeah. on this just a little bit because it's so important that if we know that the very ground of our being the very uh, below the spiders and snakes 
are the sages and saints, that below that is the real divinity, the purity, the, the, the God within whatever um, metaphor you want to use, then that will allow us to, in fact, cut through these otherwise um, frightful situations that are extraordinarily effective in, in terms of keeping us away from truth. And so how, how, how do you work with it now? What, what new uh, kind of um, skill sets do you bring when you're relating to fear? Because I know you, you write quite a bit about uh, nightmares and uh, using lucidity in working with nightmares. How, how can you um, share with us what you found most fruitful in, in that respect? Yeah, um, well, I, I mean, I think, you know, what you're saying is fascinating. It sounds like you've really kind of been there as well and uh, you've oh, yeah. worked through the fear and it's so important to do that. It can seem so scary, can't it, to, to face things. But uh, when you do it, you reap the benefits. Um, and, you know, as I grew, as I got deeper into lucid dreaming, I, I had experience after experience where every time I faced something awful in my dreams there would be this radiance that would follow uh, absolute radiance and a, and a sense of like I've, I've got through it and I'm stronger and I have this resource and you know I, I think we all have this this light within us of course we do um, this healing capacity and yet we we get far away from it and the fear takes us further away we we stay in our minds and build up the fear even more and, and turn it into something huge and are scared to face it so what I what I try to do um, in my practical workshops is teach people how we can use transformative lucidity techniques um, during the day during our waking hours to work with our dreams and in fact it's like a waking version of lucid dreaming Yes. And the more we and the more we do this kind of dream work while awake, the easier it, it is to do it then automatically in a lucid dream to to work with the scary dream figure. Um, and there are so many possibilities. I, I developed the lucid imaging nightmare solution, mm. uh, which is is kind of is a waking a, a waking technique. But it happens like once you've woken up from a nightmare, uh, you can then go back into your your dream. First of all, you calm yourself down, of course, knowing that you can stop the process at any time. Um, and if you feel that you're ready to go back into that nightmare in a, in a visualization, you just relax in your bed um, and you recall the dream imagery as far back as you can. And what's really good to do is kind of rerun it like a movie and then try and identify the tipping point, which is the moment when the dream turned into a nightmare. You know, there's often like a moment where everything everything was more or less okay and then suddenly you open the cupboard and a monster jumps out, something like that. Uh, so it's very easy there to see when it turns into a nightmare. So if you return to that tipping point as if this is a movie, your dream or your nightmare is a movie, and you can go back to that tipping point and then you try to restore the balance. You can decide whereabouts you want to change events or change your attitude towards events. We don't have to forcibly manipulate the, the dream imagery at all. Um, we can just draw on the possibilities of lucid dreaming. Um, so for example, we could offer a gift to the nasty or scary element of our dream. This can be really amazing. It's often a surprise, the kind of thing that, that turns up when you offer them a gift. Um, or you can um, surrender and just see what's going to happen. Like if you had a horrible dream about zombies, uh, you think they're going to rip you to pieces, and then you you go back into the dream and you say, well, 
okay, I know I'm safe. I'm just going to see what happens. And then perhaps instead of really trying to rip you to pieces, the zombies um, surround you like angels and beam healing light over you or something like that may happen. And it's really good to just see, to allow your unconscious to work with these images and with your lucid awareness sort of mixed in with it and see kind of what can happen. Um, you could also ask the dream for a gift. You could hug the dream monster. You can put a, cre a protective shield around yourself uh, so that you feel that you are absolutely safe and protected if the fear seems too big. Um, and you can ask if the dream or the nightmare has a message for you. Uh, this is often very, um, very interesting, the kind of responses you get. So one lady, for example, she had recurring nightmares about being chased by scary men. And she was a very, a very anxious person in her waking life as well. Um, and someone said to her, well, you know, next time that nightmare happens, ask them why they're chasing you. And she actually managed to do this. She was being chased by a big giant with glowing blue eyes. And uh, she turned around and said, why are you chasing me? And the moment she said that, he shrank down to like a normal size and, and looked very helpless and sorry. And he said, oh, um, you need us for your fear. Beautiful. And, yeah, right. And so she realized, wow. I'm actually, part of me is kind of creating this because I've got so fearful. I've got into a fearful mindset and I'm making these scary things happen. And that for her really turned her life around because not only did those recurring nightmares never come back, but she became less fearful in her waking life. So what we do in lucid dreams and when we change our attitude, it can actually change our attitude towards our waking life. And when our attitude and our outlook changes, our life changes for the better. Oh, that's just fantastic. I mean, so many terrific insights here, Claire. I mean, you know, the last thing you said, and this is the you know, large charter of, of my entire um, path and also my teaching on this material is this bi-directional approach. That exactly what you said, that what we do under the cover of darkness isn't left under the cover of darkness. It can, it can ping in this bi-directional way back into our daily lives to help us inform and then transform the way we live. But there, if you, a number of things really came to mind when you were talking mm -hmm. about this. One is... You know, I often uh, riff on this thing from the, the Nando Shaiva Tantra traditions, completely resonant with my deep study of Tibetan Buddhism, where mm -hmm. they fundamentally say, you know, they're, they're, whoa, what was that? Oh, did we just? I think we're still there. It just sounded like a yeah. big, uh, a big demon just crossed our stage. There's a dream sign. Oh. <laughs> We should all just. It was jump that nightmare? Up. We're talking about the fear. That's why. No, yeah, that was awesome. Did you hear it as well? No, I heard silence. <laughs> oh, I heard this. I heard this big, like freaky sound. So anyway, maybe it's just coming from my own mind. But within the Nandu Shaiva tradition, they have this beautiful maxim, um, where where they assert, you know, there is no darkness within, only light unseen. Um, and I think just having that vision itself is beautiful. And, and I, I want to see how this bounces off of you. When I think about nightmares, I think there's two fundamental things going on. One is that a, a large part of what's taking place um, in the kind of psychological arena is that these rejected, refused, um, unwanted aspects of our experience are, are really coming back for reintegration, for, for individuation even, and for wholeness. Or they're really, it's like a boomerang that you threw when you rejected your experience is coming back to be whole, to be healed. And they're was originally unwanted, is going to come back as unwanted, um, you know, anthropomorphized or otherwise symbolized in the dream. And if we continue to run from it, we continue to, in a certain way, 
run away from parts of ourselves, which then keep chasing after us. And so what you say is exactly what I've done, Claire, is that very often, and I haven't had a nightmare in probably 25, 30 years because of this practice. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did, I would, I would just stop because I, I had some sense of what was happening. I would turn around. I would either ask the monster directly or just face it and open my heart and hug it. And eventually, everything, it would either dissolve into light or dissolve into my heart. I would wake up lighter, freer, and then eventually these rejected aspects disappeared. And so I would, my experience is that's the psychological component of, of nightmares. But even mm-hmm. deeper is that the fundamental essence of a nightmare, nightmare is I've come to see it um, night or day. And this is where it's even more compelling during the day. Yeah. Is, is the nightmare of reification altogether. That's the fundamental nightmare taking things to be um, reified, to be solid, um, independent, and real, that's the real nightmare of which these, <laughs> of which these psychological components are, are just kind of epiphenomenal. And so to me, the, the great gift, and this, has been, this is why I teach so much on death and dying, this kind of maxim that has been a large part of my life is you know, transforming obstacle into opportunity, this kind of alchemical approach, this kind of tantric approach. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mentioning this to our listeners then, so that when you have these fearful experiences and you realize that fear is the fear, that from a spiritual, psycho-spiritual um, developmental point of view, it's actually a really good thing that now you have this tremendously precious, if not unwanted from an egoic perspective, opportunity to really integrate, to heal and, and bring these disparate rejected aspects into your experience. And so we, we solve the psychological components and then through understanding the fundamental nightmare of reification altogether, we fundamentally solve, as in dissolve, the nightmare of reification altogether. So does, does that resonate with your own experience working with this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. It really does. I mean, everything you're saying <laughs> makes perfect sense. I, uh, I'm completely on the same page as, as you with this. Um, I mean, I find that um, nightmares, they can, they can also, I mean, they can be, due to a sense of a spiritual chasm sometimes in people. Um, I I get a a lot of people, a lot of people writing to me via my website uh, who are are very desperate, you know. Uh, It's quite... It's quite remarkable how many people there are out there who are really suffering in life. And I I write back to every single one of them because I really see that as as my my role, just to try and help where I can. I mean, I get people writing to me and saying they're having recurring nightmares every night. They're scared to go to sleep. And they say to me things like, um, you know, I think I'm going mad. Or as they say, please help me to get my life back. I mean, there are some really, really desperate situations going on. Um, Sometimes it's to do with sleep paralysis. Sometimes, of course, it's to do with past traumas that are coming back to to haunt people. I mean, of course, I, I say to them, though, you know, these, these traumas are rising uh, to consciousness because, you know, it's it's maybe time to to work with them and, and, and to get on the path towards healing. Um, but there's only so much you can do kind of via email, <laughs> as you know. I mean, I'm sure right. you get a lot of people writing to you as well. And, um, you know, I just do my best to help where I can. But I do see that for some people, it's um, there's a sense of spiritual um spiritual uh, loss or a lack of spirituality in their lives or a sense of um you know it's all just going to end at death and life is completely pointless you know that kind of thing and then there are people who write with psychological uh nightmares as we've talked about 
And also nightmares can be uh, can have a physical cause. Uh, some people who have chronic pain, for example, this is something I'm going to be looking at in my in my next book on nightmares, how how the physical body can also affect what we dream about. Um, and some people have a, a sleep disturbance, which is a bit like sleep apnea, but not as bad. So it's not like you're you know, yeah, so it's not kind of the really full-on form, but there's a, a milder form where you still, uh, your your dreams will be affected. You may find you, you dream you're drowning in quicksand or someone's strangling you or something because you've got not enough air uh, going down your windpipe. Um, and so that there's all sorts of ways of, of getting to the root of nightmares and helping people. But I think it's I think it's fascinating to see the, the way that people can... Um, can heal so much in such a short space of time in their dreams. I mean, I've experienced this myself when I've gone through very difficult things in my life and I've had a, a horrible nightmare <laughs> that I really don't want to have and it's awful and all this. And, um, and then I've gone back and I have faced it in my next, uh, in the next time it comes up, I become lucid and I face it. And, uh, oh, it's just amazing how the dream can spontaneously dissolve into into light and how there, there is so much healing just in the space of just a few seconds. Um, and I think it's it's wonderful to know that we all have this power to heal ourselves. We all have that inside us. And there's this tendency, isn't there, to to look to external things or people or uh, but actually when we have the right tools, and we're ready for it. We feel like, yeah, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to face this. We can do so much work and transform on extremely deep levels by by working with our dreams. Yes, and, and isn't it also that you know the analogy I use? It's like we're, and this is why, of course, I'm, I'm one of the many reasons I'm so jazzed about these uh, practices is that we're working. The analogy I use, Claire, is you know, we're really working with the tectonic plates of our experience, the, the very ground, the yeah. roots of our mind, and so. As you know, in your own work and studying the literature, um, when we're working with such foundational levels, this, the slightest shifts down there can have massive surface implications and, and repercussions. And so I want to transition. I, I mean, oh, my gosh, we could talk about this um, <laughs> forever. But I, you're one of the, the few people, and I think this will be just to go to the other spectrum yeah. of what's available in the dream arena. You're, you're one of the few researchers, writers who talks I think quite eloquent, eloquently and beautifully um, about sex in lucid dreams. And, and mm-hmm. let's, if you don't mind going there, because uh, there aren't too many. Most of, most of the guys I talk to are heavy hitting researchers and scholars. And so to talk to you about, um, I guess you, you can see on one level, this, this is truly safe sex, but is it? Is it? So um, you talk <laughs> in, in your book, you have this beautiful um chapter on um you know, what is it like from or, orgasms to ethics um and so yeah talk, talk to us a little bit about um sex sex and dreams both lucid and non-lucid because of course if we ping this on the webinar this will draw thousands of people to this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's but true. really but you're one of the few people that has really looked into this, um, and so I yeah. really want let, let's let's dive into this one a little bit, much more. Yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's good to cover topics that not everybody covers for sure. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I've never I've never really understood why many lucid dream authors kind of tend to completely uh, avoid the subject of sex or or don't kind of delve into into it in, in terms of ethics either. But um, 
it's really fascinating. I mean, and it's a very normal human thing, you know, the sexual urge is, um, is absolutely natural. And many people um, have very erotic uh, experiences in their lucid dreams. I mean, I don't know if you've read Patricia Garfield's books. Yeah, but she, oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. yeah, I mean, she would basically just um, burst into orgasm uh, almost as soon as she got lucid in her dreams. It was very much linked to, uh, to sex for her. Um, and yeah, so the interesting thing, I think, uh, is that obviously a lot of people, they want to experiment with sex and that's, that can be a big drive for people to get lucid because they, you know, they want to go and have sex with loads of different people in their, in their dreams. Um, but I think what's interesting, uh, really for me is the, are the ethics of lucid dream sex, <laughs> um, it's quite, it's quite interesting to see yeah. how this comes out in a lucid dream. You know, some people, even if, even when they're lucid in a dream, they'll be like, oh, you know, I know this is a dream, but I, I can't do anything sexual because I'm married. And what would my wife say? You know, kind of this. So we can still have a, a very strong uh, sense of ethics in our in our dreams. Um, but, yeah, the, the interesting thing for me is when, and the sort of disturbing in one way, is when I read on lucid dreaming forums about uh, people just sort of, well, raping other people in their yeah. lucid dreams. Yeah. So acts of violence in lucid dreams. And I, yeah. I listen to the reasoning um, and it's like, yeah, this is my dream. I can do whatever I want. Um, these are just figments of my imagination. I can shoot them, kill them, rape them, you know, all that sort of, uh, that yeah. sort of reasoning comes out, which... Yeah, I mean, on, on one level, okay, it's it's a form of reasoning, but I think anyone who's gone more deeply into lucid dreaming would not necessarily agree that <laughs> that that everything in a dream is a figment of the imagination, uh, and that there are zero repercussions um, when we think about our actions in a lucid dream. Um, I think that um, this often happens that people say, oh. You know, if you if you rape in a dream, uh, you're more likely to late, rape someone in real life, for example. So that would be one other, the opposite end of the spectrum, that whole argument. Um, or people will say, well, no, dream rape can't hurt anyone and it doesn't make more people, people more likely to rape in waking life. So there's all these arguments that come in. I mean, for me, it's really, I, I feel like, People who have a greater degree of psychological insight might might say, well, actually, you know, dreams are part of my psyche and I respect everything that manifests in my psyche. And uh, I do have a certain responsibility in a sense to be more compassionate. And, and these things, the way we act in our dreams, it does carry on over into waking life to an extent, maybe not to the extent of going out and hurting uh, somebody in waking life, but it still has an impact because every thought that we think has an impact on our waking reality, on our dreaming reality. Um, and I think that... For me, it's like the dream is not only part of our individual psyche, but we all are part of this universal psyche. So everything we do, the energy we create, the thoughts that we think, whether we're awake or asleep, that all contributes to the state of the universal psyche. So it's something interesting to think about, you know. I mean, what do you think, Andrew? Do you think it matters yeah. or 
Oh, yeah, without, oh, without a doubt. That, that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. And, and, you know, with all the guests, you're my first. And, and when I read your stuff on this, I said, oh, my gosh, she's the perfect one to talk to. So, yes, a number of things. And I'd love to hear what you think about it. First of all, I think when people think that, you know, they may reason their way out of what they're doing, mm -hmm. it's not reasoning as much as it is. It's just rationalization. And so uh, there's so much to say here. One is that um, certainly it. A large part of what I do, as you probably know, is based on um, the so-called Eastern traditions, Eastern thought, practice. Um, and in the Eastern way of looking at things, wherever intention is involved, even at the level of a dream, karma is created, a uh, habit. I mean, karma is just an Eastern word for habit. And so using the, the tenets of, of neuroplasticity, just to throw a little bit of a scientific tinge to it. And also for those listeners who are students of inner yoga, what I refer to as nadi plasticity, how it's not just neural structures, but also a subtle body structure that can be changed. Mm -hmm. As you well know from your own work, Claire, that what we do with our mind affects our brain, affects our body. Yeah. So it's not it's not just, again, kept under the darkness of, of the unconscious mind. That's That's both a blessing and the curse. And so as you're pointing out to it, when you're engaged in violence in your dreams, um, and first of all, that in itself, another tremendous arena is not only from a psychological perspective, ever since Freud, um, you know, dreams as truth tellers, but in the world of dream yoga, the maxim, the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path. So dreams mm -hmm. are revelatory. Dreams are, are sometimes painfully revelatory, and they will reveal to you these unconscious tendencies and so that's tremendous good news for those of us who have the courage to look at these revelations and yeah. obviously not so not so good news for those who want to indulge in it and so i think what it reveals like with people who who rape in their dreams and um, engage in violent tendencies it's exactly what you're saying you're you're being violent towards the, the deeper dimensions of your own mind because i often poses as a reflection, reflective question to people is like, you know, when you're working with your dreams, what are you working with? What are dreams <laughs> made of? Well, exactly. there's no, yeah, there's no pre-existing landscape objectified in there. It's your mind. You're working with your mind. And so the biggest thing, and, and, and I often bring this up, and is that it's one of the real shadow sides with the, the heavy marketing with lucid dreaming now, that it's mm -hmm. the ultimate in self-fulfillment, you know, fulfill your wildest fantasies within the sanctuary of your own mind. But, you know, they don't read the small print, of course, and I'm just saying this tongue-in-cheek, that wherever intention is involved, habit is created. And so I, I toss this out there so that when people engage in this, you, you have to realize there are repercussions, not only individually. And I love, Claire, what you said about the cosmic collective. And, and my dear friend Ken Wilbur Mm -hmm. writes about this really powerfully in his book, Integral Spirituality, where he draws mm -hmm. on, you know, so much draws on the challenging work of Rupert Sheldrake and morphogenetic fields and the like, that, that what we do with every thought um, we have, whether we know it or not, it, it's, it's part of the collective soup. And, and what we do really does affect the, co the collective matrix because it's only at these superficial dimensions that we feel we're separate entities at the very foundations of our being we're, we're all one and i i mean i'll just toss this in very deeply as a sidebar because it's well beyond our scope but this is even implicated in these revolutionary ideas in physics called quantum entanglement so it's not just spiritual metaphysical rhetoric here yeah. we're, we're, we're talking about deep foundational tenets that they provide a great sense of responsibility that what we say think do and act 
not only affects ourselves and those around us, but it has it, it, it creates a signature, an imprint, and this deeper collective unconscious and then even deeper collective superconscious mind. So I, everything you say, my dear, is just spot on. <laughs> so with that, with that said, advise us, counsel us about really safe sex. Um, you know, obviously not just in the sense of not getting an STD, but mm-hmm. really to, to engage in the, in the dream state um, in, in this type of union, because fundamentally that's what that's representing. Maybe give us some parental advice. <laughs> give, us, give, us, give us the birds and bees. Dear Billy, today we're going to talk, talk about the birds and the bees. Talk to us a little bit about um, the best ways to have safe, truly safe sex in the dream state and, and honor um, this experience. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that I always try to do, I mean, I never want to kind of set myself up as, as someone who kind of knows more than other people in that sense. I mean, I don't want to be like the, the thought police, you know, I don't want to say, hey, you know, this is right, and this is wrong. I, I have my own views, if, as you've heard, but I think everyone has their own journey. Um, one guy wrote to me, um, and he said, oh, he's, you know, one of these people who goes out and takes a machine gun into his lucid dreams and mows everybody down or rapes a few yeah uh, rapes a few dream figures I mean it's really and and he said to me I know that I can do all this because it's just a dream and they're just figments of my imagination so why do I wake up feeling so bad in the morning and I thought ah you see but this is part of his journey isn't it Andrea I mean it's like he's He's gone through that, and now he's got to the point where he's saying, well, hang on, if it's okay, as perhaps his friends are telling him, why do I wake up feeling morally bad in the morning? And then he's come to me because he saw, I don't know, an article I wrote on lucid dream sex or something, or he read my book, and he wants to ask me that question. Um, And then I think this is really good because this person is ready to to hear another possibility. Um, And I also get people saying to me, I have to rape my lucid dream figures because uh, they otherwise they won't have sex with me. Oh my you god! Know, and, wow. Yeah, uh, they, honestly, they, I, I swear, these people write to me all the time with these kind of dilemmas, you know. Um, and and that the, the second case is um, someone who hasn't understood the, one of the golden rules of lucid dreaming, which is the magic power of expectation. You yeah. know, yeah. he's intending to have dream sex, but you know, everything's going wrong. So he decides, no, I really am going to do this and forces things. But he needs to, if he wants to have um, happy, uh, consensual, lucid dream sex in that sense, um, then he needs to expect a willing dream partner and then everything will go more easily. So people sometimes, they just need more information about about how lucid dreaming really works so they can experiment and then make an informed decision about how they personally want to behave in their dreams. Um, so I, you know, I, again, I answer these, uh, these people who come to me and, uh, I try and meet them uh, at a point that, that they can take one, one more step, perhaps in a, in a nicer direction, like towards more compassion, <laughs> uh, or more healing, uh, thing. And I, I teach them then about expectations. So expect to have, a, a wonderful erotic encounter with mm-hmm. the girl or the boy of your choice, you know, um, and also 
respect them. Be kind, be respectful, because that is when amazing things happen in lucid dreams, you know. If you go in there and you change your attitude, so you're not saying, this is my playground, this is my video game, I'll do whatever I want. If you change that into like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be kind and respectful, I'm going to listen to my dream figures, I'm going to engage in a compassionate way with my dream environments, then that's when the magic happens in lucid dreams, because your dreaming mind is you I mean you are your dreams and your dreams are you so they can respond you can have this wonderful conversation with your dreaming mind Um, and also if you incubate an erotic lucid dream that's a good way of having the kind of um, lucid sex dream that you want Uh, visualize the dream figures uh, thinking sex is a great idea you know so that things go well Um, and you could use a a power word or a gesture to kind of make magic to make things happen in the dream all those usual kind of lucid dreaming things but I think one of the important things is and I often respond to people like this I say ask yourself who am I when I yeah. dream yeah you know do I yeah. do I want to act aggressively do I want to act with kindness yeah. am I ready to listen and respond um, and uh, well obviously you know this the Buddhists say that to find out how the mind will be in death, See how the mind is in dreams. And we are responsible to some extent for our reactions, our actions, and, you know, whether we're awake or asleep. So if we can practice kindness in all states of consciousness, you know, because every state of consciousness is important, then we will find it easier to be kind in waking life. We understand that we are all one and we're all part of this amazing cosmos. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, Claire, that's just so beautiful. You know, several things came to mind. One is, and I'm sure you know that, that this is one of the reasons that Carl Jung, who was probably one of the most sophisticated dreamers of the last century, was somewhat hesitant to endorse lucid dreaming because he realized the potential for self-aggrandizement, for, for psychological abuse. Yeah. And, and we see these sorts of things. And so to me, you really brought up some interesting things that in a very real way, again, using this idea that what are dreams made of, um, and, and pardon my French here and pardon you know, the language to my listeners, but when you're, when you're fucking something in your dreams, what are you really doing? You're fucking with mm-hmm. your mind. You're, you're fucking yourself. You're, you're messing around, screwing with your mind. And so what you're saying is so beautiful that instead of this aggressive tendency towards your own self, that you're simply mm-hmm. objectifying in these ways, you can use this to literally learn how to make love to yourself, how you can train and change the the fundamental in, in Buddhist cosmology. Claire, they, mm-hmm. they they talk that in the human dimension we live in what's referred to as as the realm of desire, the, the realm of passion. It's the principal kind of uh, emotion that drives what we do. I mean, everything fundamentally is driven by passion and desire. And so, when yeah. we work with things like sex, we're we're basically just working with the archetypal expression of that very energy, which, as you know. In the deep inner tantric yoga practices, uh, the inner heat practices, you know, the, the very, very um, distorted, misunderstood kind of notion of tantric sex. The fundamental idea is you're transforming the heat of passion into the warmth of compassion. And yeah. so th- this is the parental advice. This is the parental advice that I'm hearing you say mm. is that, yes, the passion is there. Don't throw the baby out with the, the bathwater. But again, in this alchemical way, look into the real nature of that passion. What are you trying to fundamentally unite with? And how does that, that perverted 
um, kind of energy of unification get distorted into this aggression. And then, then take that same energy. This is, again, this is real Tantra. This is real alchemy. Take that same, same energy, explore it deeply, centrifuge out the rejected egoic elements. And then the next time you have sex with yourself, you're, you are literally learning how to love your mind. I mean, to me, this is one of yeah. my favorite this is one of my favorite definitions for meditation these days, and I think it would apply to therapy, is that learn how children, which include, I should say, thoughts and dreams, um, because my, my maxim is that, that thoughts are to waking consciousness as dreams are to dreaming consciousness. These are the, these are the children of your mind. They're, you give birth to these children. And so unless you're a little bit wigged out and confused, like some of the you know, the, the suffering people you're referring to, you want to love your children. And so I often say in my meditations instruction and also with, with lucid nightmare therapy things is learn how to open your heart, mind, and, and learn how to love your mind. Um, and right. that's the way you hug it, you, you, you know, you, you embrace it, and then you transform these um, untoward energies into real energies of compassion and kindness. So, yeah, exactly. And I'm very glad that you brought up that point because this is this is something that I that I also really feel strongly about and teach is is that it's it's good to love yourself, it's good to care for yourself, it's good to appreciate yourself. And and it's like this whole thing about having compassion for yourself. So many people in the world, they just they're very, very harsh with themselves, um, and they've got onto a path where they respond with perhaps with violence or with negativity or anger. Ah, oh, yeah, and it's just so good when people understand uh, on a deep level that yeah, it's actually really okay. It's more than okay. It's brilliant to to love yourself and feel compassionate for yourself. And I believe that lucid dreaming can really, really help us to to reach that conclusion because we can experience that. In, in the very uh, interactive um, environment of the lucid dream, where all our thoughts and emotions get kind of instantly uh, transmogrified into streams of imagery. So we can yeah. see the workings of our mind and we can see how everything we think and feel impacts our reality. And that is a wonderful lesson for lucid living, one that we can bring into our waking lives so that we can react um, to difficult events with more more compassion and everything flows more harmoniously when we feel that compassion and, our, and that love. And we are more able to help other people as well when we have that sense of love and compassion for ourselves. So it's, it's win-win, you know, <laughs> it's sort of a win-win it? situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, isn't it true that we express towards others what we express towards ourselves? And, and so if we can use yeah. the, the dreaming state as a is a kind of laboratory of the heart mind where we can become more familiar with with who we really are and then the word is you know metta or maitri this this development of tremendous kindness towards others what the dalai lama refers to as inner disarmament you know learning mm. how to tra transform relationship to the contents of our own uh, mind especially these somewhat challenging contents and experiences and then by natural extension again in this kind of bi-directional way then we just naturally start to extend this. And then to me, it's like, you know, I, I playfully use this idea, Claire, that that uh, we often, we know what it's like to wake up on the wrong side of the bed and how that can color our experience, like what some of these people mm -hmm. earlier were sharing with you. I, I find that these practices of, of lucid dreaming and the other nocturnal practices, in fact, show us how to wake up on the right side of the bed every morning so that we bring the radiance of our nighttime experience. We allow it to perfume our day. And then fundamentally, 
uh, we allow it to perfume the entirety of our lives. And so let, let me ask you this along these lines, Claire. This issue of control in dreams, I, I, it's such a sparky topic in, <laughs> in, in, in the literature. Um, and some people say, oh, you know, you shouldn't control your dreams. You should let the messages uh, come up um, and you know, maybe perhaps work with interpretation. The yogic traditions have a different approach, and I will share with you what my understanding is. But I'm very mm -hmm. curious how you now relate to this issue of dream control. Because again, if we come back to this maxim that when you were talking about dream control, we're, we're really talking about mind control. Um, what does that really mean? And, and how, where do you come down on, on this topic? What is your view on this notion of um, do we, should we control our dreams? And in fact, um, to what extent do we have control? How much can mm -hmm. we control? Yeah, I mean, I always say to people, because you, you, you often get people who come and say, lucid dreaming is all about control, and, and I don't like control and, and, and all this. And I say to them, hey, you know, you, it's perfectly possible just to become lucid in your dream and go with the flow. You don't have to try and control anything. Uh, it, it's just as in waking life. You can go with the flow of things or you can decide to guide events. Um, so it's not all about control by any means. And I, uh, there's this great spontaneity in the dreaming mind, which is something absolutely, utterly magical that we discover as we go uh, more deeply into lucid dreaming that even if you're kind of really quite uh, guiding events in quite a specific way, oh, something surprising and amazing will always come up. Um, and give you an example from my from my little daughter. Uh, she was having dreams about scary witches. And I told her, you know, about the basic uh, options that you can do uh, in a lucid dream. You know, I said, they, you know, you could make friends with them or you could, you could fly off or you do whatever you want, you know, just see how you want to react in the dream. Um, and I also said you could give them a gift. And so she had the dream again about the scary witches. Um, and this time she stood and faced them and she gave them a baby witch doll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as soon as, as soon as the witches held onto this little baby witch doll, this is the surprising, amazing thing. It turned into a real live witch baby. Oh, wow. And they were just astounded. And so was Yasmin, my daughter. And everything was wonderful. They all sat down and had a picnic and there were cupcakes and they, they were in a forest and it was all just perfect. And, and she told me about this dream upon waking and she never had the scary witch dreams again, but she had now made allies in her dreams. She had powerful friends to help her. And she'd seen the way that although she was kind of guiding the dream in a sense, you know, giving them a gift and not being scared and standing her ground and knowing she could wake up if she wanted, suddenly this amazing spontaneous thing happens which transforms uh, transforms the dream and, and and lucid dreaming is like that it happens all the time um, yeah. I mean I, I've done experiments when I was doing my doctoral research into lucid dreaming I did experiments to to see how far can we control a dream and how yeah. far can we not control it I mean how how does it go so in, in one dream I decided I'm going to do absolutely nothing. I'm not even going to think a guiding thought, right? I'm just going to stand here. I was in some woods with some flowers, and I'm just going to observe the dream. Um, and so I stood there, and I looked around, and everything was lovely, a little breeze in the, in the trees and all that. And I looked down, and I saw this red buttercup, and I was like, oh, a red buttercup. And part of me kind of thought, 
oh, buttercups are usually yellow. But I thought, well, I'm not going to think about that. So I looked away, looked around, looked back down, and guess what? The buttercup had turned yellow <laughs> to, to fit in with my expectations that buttercups yeah. should be yellow. And I was like, damn it, you know, <laughs> here's me yeah. trying not to try yeah. not to, to do anything. And then that's, you know, I really realized, hey, we are the lucid dream and the lucid dream is us. And every thought we think, even a really quiet little thought about a buttercup would be picked up on by the dream because it's a thought responsive environment. So. And so is a, you know, a regular dream is absolutely a thought responsive environment as well. As soon as we get scared in a regular dream, it turns worse. It gets even scarier. And that's the way it is. It's like a mirror. So but once you realize that you are intricately and intimately involved in your dream, it's not a separate thing that you can control or not control in that sense. It's like it's totally responsive. It's like telepathy. Uh, once you realize that, then the whole idea of dream control takes on a, a different meaning, I think. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I think you know this is what sometimes is pointed towards as the topic of lucid solipsism. You know that this is where, this is the arena where we can really witness the role of the mind as a, as a magnificent creator. And I, I find it infinitely fascinating because to me, this is where the definition of lucid dreaming as a hybrid state of consciousness. You know, this rare refined mm -hmm. state where the conscious mind can face the unconscious mind directly. I, I, Claire, I find that just breathtaking because, you know, as, as you know, ever since Freud and even before, who uh, one could argue that Freud fundamentally discovered the unconscious mind, at least for the Western world, mm -hmm. you know, backstage runs on stage. We, we think we run so-called conscious lives, but the vast majority of what we do are run by unconscious processes. It's like, I think psychological interpretation of what Christ said, you know, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And so when we're, <laughs> so so when we're working with these states, and especially when I, you know, uh, when I wake up and I'm having like a hyper lucid dream, I wake up and I'm going, ooh, tonight's a good one, you know. I'm like my, mm -hmm. it's really clear, it's really stable. And then for me, you know, with with the stages of kind of dream yoga that I've, I've um, articulated and what I play with. I will automatically jump to the highest stages because it's like, whoa, you know, now we've got a little bit of subtlety involved. And and to me, the opportunity to explore these deepest aspects of the unconscious mind are the most rewarding parts. And and of course, and this is what I want to transition into mm -hmm. with you, is we start to go from the shallow end of the pool to the deeper end. What you yeah. refer to what you refer to as deep lucid dreaming. I love it. Deep lucid diving mm -hmm. is is when we can then transition um, not only to what the psychologists refer to as the unconscious mind, but what the wisdom traditions refer to as the the, uh, the super unconscious mind, you know, what I was alluding to earlier is a clear light mind. And you're, you're, yeah. one, of the, you're one of the few writers, and this is where I, I love to, to start to transition with you, that talks about the lucid light, the void, um, which is utterly confluent resonant with what my tradition refers to as bardo yoga and luminosity yoga but i would mm -hmm. love to hear um if if you think we're done with this uh, this thing I, on dream yeah, control sure. obviously there's so much more we could say about that <laughs> but but, but sh share with us some of your experiences if you would um with the so-called lucid light how, how that first entered your dream arena and what that experience actually might have been for you are you okay talking a little bit about this absolutely yeah of course yeah i mean um for me i i guess over time i started to realize as i as i began to face down my nightmares and uh uh see what happened when i when i relaxed and went with the flow i would 
find more and more light seeping into my dreams. Um, it, it could come, for example, in the form of um, two suns in the sky uh, or two moons or else um, a dissolution into light so that my whole dream body would dissolve and the dream itself would dissolve and everything would become light. And as I continued to experiment, this was, oh, I guess I was in my early 20s, I started um, to meditate in lucid dreams. Um, yeah, and that is so amazing. I recommend it to absolutely anybody because <laughs> it's so much easier to meditate in a lucid dream than it is in, in the waking state, you know. Um, when, we, when we meditate in a lucid dream, Almost instantly, uh, we tend. But what tends to happen for me and other people I know who have who have done this is that uh, you instantly go into a super deep meditative state. The dream falls away. You may even lose your dream body. So what? You know, and you just go deep very, very fast. I think it's the fastest ever way to go mm -hmm. into an incredibly deep state mm -hmm. of meditative consciousness, which brings you right into the heart of what I call. The lucid light yeah um, and, and when I first started doing this I used to you know I, I would sit down cross-legged with a straight spine and take a deep breath and and uh, um, close my eyes you know all that sort of stuff but I <laughs> I quickly learned that you don't even need to do that in a lucid dream right. you don't need to do that you don't have to use a body you don't need the dream body you know and so you can just um, have this intention a pure intention to meditate in your lucid dream and then all this stuff will, will just happen you know and it, it's just incredible um, how much you can learn from that state um, I remember once I, um, I I actually meditated with this really old woman in my in my dream she was really powerful you know how sometimes you become lucid and some dream figures are just like you see that they're like super awake they're really yeah. aware dream figures they're the ones, of course, to go towards and find out what, you know, what, what they've got in store for you if they have something to teach you. Um, and, and this woman, uh, I was in a crowded auditorium and I became lucid just, just like that for no real reason, looked around the room and bam, you know, our eyes met and I was like, wow. And as soon as she looked at me with that conscious gaze, she turned around and left the auditorium. And so, of course, I followed her. And we went into this back room, which was all white with two kind of like massage beds on it, kind of, you know, not proper beds, but kind of more like massage beds and everything in white. And she went onto one of the beds and lay down, folded her arms across her chest and closed her eyes. And I was like, OK. So I got onto the other bed and did the same thing. And immediately, bam, I was in this super deep meditation. I was like, wow, this woman's powerful. She's she, she's just she's done this for me. She's put me in this super deep state. And in fact, well, in that dream, it was uh, quite a difficult dream in some ways because she showed me um, some images which were pretty disturbing and which I felt as well in my body, um, like being pressed down by a gravestone, things like that. Um, and I realized at the time with the sinking feeling that these were these were images of the future, something that was going to happen. Um, but at the same time, she was showing me, you have the strength to get through this. And she I don't know, it was like a kind of spiritual companion or something. And I came out of that dream knowing, okay, things are going to get crazy and um, I have to be very strong. And those things did happen in waking life and I had to be very strong for them. And I meditated and that helped me to get through them because I had already connected to what she had shown me, this really, really deep meditative space. 
So um, I kind of went off topic there with, with that dream, but no, that's, um, that's good. <laughs> I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, I, okay, I started to meditate my lucid dreams and went deeper, and I began to have um, incredible experiences of dissolving into light, um, and it made me realize that in fact there is luminosity beneath all appearances. That's right any expression of matter there is this incredible luminosity and we are that luminosity we are it and it is us and there is no me or it it's just all one and when you reach that state in lucid dreams it's it's just it's just wonderful it's very sort of it's like finding the source of everything i i see the lucid light as um as being it's something that is present everywhere we are, and it's also the baseline state of consciousness. That's how I think of it. It's not the baseline state of consciousness is not the waking state. It's actually the lucid light. It's the light from which all forms and matter emerged. It's this original alive light from which all states of consciousness, um, all energy, matter, and physical forms has emerged. Um, and I think of it as, um, yeah, just being being there all the time, but particularly easy to access in lucid dreams. Because in a lucid dream, like I say, you can lose your body in a couple of seconds or even less, you know, and you can go into this light. Um, and some of the experiences, what, what I've done in my dreams as well is I've asked about um, what dreams are made of. Um, and in one dream, I became lucid in a room and I remembered I wanted to ask this question. I said, oh, what are dreams made of? I just asked the dream. And suddenly there was like this huge kind of earthquake feeling. Everything started to judder and fall apart. And I'm so familiar with that from my lucid dreams that I just laughed and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, dreams are made of energy. I get it. And I said, but tell me this, what is energy made from? Okay. Immediately all the juddering stopped and oh, there was just like these luminous chains of light that came in from all directions and filled the dream space. And it was so beautiful. And I said, wow, I was just totally overawed. And I said, OK, so energy is made from light. Yeah. And that for me, that was just like a, a personal you know, a personal question that I asked. Um, but it, everything seemed to be taking me to this light. Um, and, and I, I think it's, you know, it's pure conscious awareness. It's like the energy of the universe and beyond. Uh, it's the oneness that binds everything together. And I know that you have a lot of experience with this as well through uh, the practice of sleep yoga. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, you, now you're hitting my sweet spots because, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm just sitting here nodding my head so fast it's going to fall off my shoulders. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just beautiful. It, it, but let me ask you a couple of questions, Claire, before I just make a, a little kind of supportive statements on that. Um, mm -hmm. What tradition of meditation are, are you kind of trained in or what your what is your experience? Because when people when people talk about meditation these days, to me, meditation is like the word sports. You know, there's probably, you know, what, 500 sports and there's probably 500 different types of meditation. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners, I'm curious when when you say you meditate in your dreams, can you be a little bit more specific about the actual type of practice that you're doing? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, for me, I mean, I'm I'm a, a yoga teacher and uh, I trained in the Shivananda tradition mm -hmm. of Hatha yoga mm -hmm. uh, and uh, kind of I guess I guess there, you know, we, we did meditation there with mantras or or without mantras. And um, I very quickly brought that into my into my dreams. So I just 
basically just I observe what's happening in my mind without getting too attached to it and I go deeper I just let it I just let it all drop away um, and I find that obviously in the waking state it's more challenging because you've got a physical body uh, you might have I don't know an itch on your nose or, or your or your spine's hurting or whatever um, but just try kind of try to move past those uh, maybe focus on something uh, I find we haven't talked about hypnagogia um, right. yet but but you know like this hypnagogic imagery um, doesn't have to be kind of the pre-dream state there are various levels of hypnagogia and for me the the meditative hypnagogia that I get is this purple dot that like as soon as I close my eyes and relax then this purple dot kind of purple sphere appears in front of my mind's eye it's very beautiful very luminous and if I focus on that then it's just that takes me into a deeper level of um, conscious awareness yeah that's beautiful oh my gosh so much to say here so yeah I mean a a number of things here Claire coming immediately to mind you know in in the Hindu traditions you know, Advaita Vedanta, Vajrayana Buddhism, and the like, we we have our views of reality are, are completely um, ass backwards. That we are um, actually the most asleep, the most uh, the least potentiated arena for psycho spiritual development is actually the reified waking state. Mm-hmm. And that if, we're, if that if we're lucid to it, we are actually more able to transform and wake up. We're more in contact with reality. In, in the dream state and in the deep dreamless state. And this is, of course, is why Ramana Maharshi so beautifully and cryptically said, you know, that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real. So the, mm-hmm. we, when we land into this fundamental bed, this is exactly as you said, this is the, the total purview of, of what's called luminosity yoga, or mm-hmm. the, oh, what, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, that's the real meaning of what, uh, what we call sleep yoga, where uh, we drop into also what the Hindus refer to to tie back in to what you're saying about that this this is in fact the bed of all reality um they refer to it as causal consciousness that everything arises from the space mm-hmm. moment to mo- moment to moment day to day life and life everything returns to the space buddhists refer to it even though it cannot be named of course it has a hundred names mm-hmm. i i usually refer to it as the clear light mind for for a number of reasons but um mm-hmm. so many things here that when we have access both in the lucid dream state and in particular in lucid sleep because in the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, Claire, um, lucid dreaming is just considered partial lucidity. You're just halfway there. Um, mm-hmm. full, full lucidity is is lucid sleep. And so when you attain lucid sleep, you're automatically lucid in your dreams. It's just a natural consequence. And so the, the Nyingmapas target lucid sleep as the foundational practice. That's why you know sleep yoga transcends but includes dream yoga. So when you're lucid in, in the sleep state, you're automatically lucid in the dream. And so this issue of light, oh my gosh, I mean, this is something that, that we could talk about so much. But let me just say a couple things that, that you know, this stuff is, you know, talk about the deep dive. This is now when you're starting to get into the very nature of mind and reality. And, and I often ask people, you know, again, when they're, when they're looking at dreams in relation to waking life, when during the course of waking life, we, how is it that we know and perceive the objects during the, um, see objects during the day? Well, it's obviously because there's light waves, particles being reflected off of objects and, and you know, bouncing onto our eyes. But when we're in the dream, where is that light coming from? I mean, where, how do we perceive the objects in the dream? And so um, there's a very, very deep exploration that fundamentally will reveal to an explorer, uh, an internal researcher, an internal dream scientist that 
that the, the objects are simply made of the light of the mind itself. And so that the objects mm -hmm. are, are self-illuminating, self-aware. Exactly. And, that, and then, you know, you can take that. And in my tradition, we use the nighttime dream is what's referred to as the example dream or the double delusion. And so we study the phenomenology of the nighttime dream as a way to extract, extrapolate the insights again back in the kind of bidirectional process into waking life. And so then we ask ourselves the same questions that we ask during the night. You know, I mean, what is in fact the nature of this fundamental reality? And as you know, and this is, I'm so into this right now, Claire, because this is literally mm -hmm. one of the main points in the, in the book I'm finishing, the uh -huh. deep dive book. Is, is a really deep dive into the nature of reality as made of light. This is not just, again, rhetoric. This is uh, quantum mechanics, in particular the work of David Bohm, another um, quantum physicist, talk about reality quite literally as frozen light, and that when you return to the bedrock of reality, it's, it's really um, not at all dissimilar from the bedrock of the mind itself, which is really of the nature of light. And so yeah. in, my, in my practice, we have a, a, a massive battery of, of or practices that we can now transition into um, that where we use the darkness of the night, you know, to, to prepare for death as a way to work with the light um, and what's what the Tibetans refer to, you know, as, as the dream at the end of time. But uh, just one last comment before we transition into that, you know, the, the Tibetan view of reality refers to at this foundational level that the world is made of what are called um, bindus um, and bindus are not a particularly easy topic to define, but they're sometimes visualized as, as sesame seed sized um, mm -hmm. uh, kind of dots of light. And so when you talk about this this purple dot that, mm. that, that kind of dissolves, to me, I mean that is absolutely um, what we call bindu principle. And maybe we can talk in a future because there's no way we can get through all the things I want to talk about. <laughs> we can talk further. There's an entire battery of very subtle practices here, Claire, yeah. part of the Dzogchen tradition called Togal, um, crossing over into spontaneous presence, where one literally literally goes into the dark, does things like dark retreat, um, as a way to bring out this light, not just within the context of a dream, but within the context of uh, intense sensory deprivation where yeah. um, you know these natural lights the light of the mind then start to reveal themselves in fact as these patterns and so when when i was reading about your work and you're sharing these these kind of hypnagogic experiences um and others where you're seeing this kind of um these geometric patterns of light th these actually have a very specific place in, in the in the toga practices um, that one can cultivate in sleep yoga and in particular into part yoga. So um, now, yeah, now you're hitting, hitting the very sweet spot of the whole shebang to me. And so let me ask you this, Claire. So when you have this experience, mm -hmm. which again, as you know, is, is beyond profound. It's, it's, it's the very definition of irreducible bliss. I am curious, is this something that you experience? I mean, it is, it, it, it's very subtle here. You almost have to switch to totally right hemispheric thinking. Mm -hmm. is, is there a sense that you are experiencing this light, or is it more an experience that you dissolve and actually become the light? How yeah, does, does, I mean, it's, it's definitely in the beginning. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in the very beginning, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm – you know, I'm in the light, but then everything dissolves. My ego sense of self, Claire, you know, dissolves, it goes, and I become, well, I, whatever I am, whatever's left of me, <laughs> becomes becomes the light. It's, it's 
pure being. In fact, it's pure being. Um, and, and in some very rare occasions, I've been able to have a full lucid light experience, um, also just kind of without um, without being asleep and dreaming. Um, but it doesn't happen very often. One time I had nearly finished, well, I just finished sending off a book to my editor and you know how exhausting it is, that final gallop towards the finishing line of a book. I was so tired. Oh, like I got up and I, I worked and much and worked. Finally sent the book off um, and I felt physically ill. I was totally yeah. drained and exhausted. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be ill. I have to go to bed. Um, and this is like in the middle of the day, but I was like, I don't care. I'm going to go to bed. Um, and the moment I lay down on my bed, completely exhausted, um, I closed my eyes and immediately the, the light came. It, it gathered around me in the room that, and I was like, oh, you know, it's, oh my God, you know, here it is. It's the light. And then I was held in, in the light. Um, I had no idea how long it went on for. And after a while I came out of it, I felt my body on the bed again. I opened my eyes. I looked at my watch and it had been like one and a half hours had gone by. And I, guess what? I felt amazing. <laughs> I, yeah. I jumped out of bed. I was like, wow, I'm so full of energy. And I grabbed my bike and I went for a bike ride along the river. <laughs> I, mean, I, yeah, I was like, yeah, hey, I've, I finished my book and I feel amazing and I'm not going to be ill. And, and I really felt that light just came to like, to buoy me up, you know, and, and give me energy. It's so refreshing. It's it's just amazing. And so oh, I, I really believe that this light it is always there. It's always there. It's yep. just that in most states of yep. consciousness, we close the door on it. But if we kind of get more lucid in our life and our way of looking at things like recognizing beauty, I mean, there's so much luminous beauty right outside, you know, or even within the, the house, you know, you go into nature, you're closer to that luminosity. Um, you meditate in nature, you're even closer, you know, I mean, there are so many steps, but it's around us all the time. It's because it's within us, you know, we're not actually separate from that light. And that for me is a beautiful, very powerful spiritual realization, because it gives you hope as well. And it, it takes you through the hard parts of life that we all have. So it's really, it's a wonder isn't it isn't it and so many things here i mean when you talk about nature and how it can evoke that it's because mm. um nature can help reveal nature of mind and you know the outer invokes the inner and and i was yeah. also i was also struck with how it was exhaustion that led you to this insight because it's a classical actual what what's called sometimes a pointing out technique where through a series of physical exhaustions or sometimes you know co mental cognitive exhaustions, fundamentally the body mind is fundamentally just wiped out and exhausted. And at that mm -hmm. instant of utter exhaustion, sometimes you literally can plop into this foundational bed of mind, which which yeah. really, as you said, I, I totally jive with what you're saying. Where this is where you recharge. The ultimate ground of your entire absolute dimensions of being. And Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, as you may know, Claire talks very beautifully about how this needs to be distinguished from relative recharging, and how he talks about that when we when we dissolve into um, uh, usual non-lucid sleep, we're fundamentally just dissolving into the the matrix of of samsara. We're dissolving into yeah. ignorance, and and so that that ignorance it hits the refresh button. On the samsaric mind, that's where, <laughs> where that's where the samsaric mind goes at night. By the way, parenthetically, this is where the samsaric mind goes in, in distraction because daily distraction mm -hmm. is just a moment-to-moment -moment expression of this kind of more foundational ignorance. And so when we go to sleep yeah. at night, 
we drop into this relative bed to recharge our samsaric batteries. But when you talk about what you're dropping into, now you're dropping into the absolute bed of the awakened mind. That mm. really recharges you. Because then when you come up, instead of bringing the, dark, the darkness of ignorance back with you from regular samsaric non-lucid sleep, now you're bringing the light of full lucidity, the wisdom mind, into your awareness. And, th and that fundamentally transforms your entire life. And everything you're saying is so resonant because then the world literally and metaphorically becomes lighter. Exactly. You, 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 bring, you bring the light of that awareness with you. Um, it transforms fundamentally on the way up, so to speak, in, into spontaneous automatic clear light dreams. That light continues when you wake up into so-called waking conscious reality. That infuses our experience in the waking state into what we call um, perfectly pure or loose reform. And so, you know, the Buddhist cartography of practices here is, and this is what I just so love, um, that when someone who's not a Tibetan Buddhist who doesn't do this stuff, it's a little bit like when I had this beautiful conversation with Robert Wagner, who's another rare being to talk about lucid sleep. I know, Robert, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I hear you guys talking about the stuff that is just like so up the alley of what these traditions have put forth. To me, it's like, here we go. Nobody has a patent on this stuff, and this is why I'm riffing on it. Nobody mm -hmm. has a, this is the nature of, of mind and reality. It's available to each and every one of us. And even though certain traditions, in my case, you know, the Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhist approach, certain traditions mm -hmm. seem to have somewhat sophisticated maps and practices. Absolutely. The, yeah. the real beauty is that someone like you and someone like Robert can drop into these states and, and it's exactly the same thing. And you come mm -hmm. up, you have exactly these, these same luminous experiences. And to me, it, it's just so fantastic. It refer, it, you know, it's, this reveals to me the universality of the awakened state that, that exactly. nobody, nobody has a patent on it. And so when I read your stuff, yeah. it, it just excites the beans out of me. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> I mean, you know, look at this amazing thing that she's going through. And, and, and so I, I want to, you know, a little exclamation point on this for our listeners is that, that when you do have these types of experiences, which may seem, geez, I don't know what they're talking about. They seem so this and so forth. Well, you may surprise yourself. These are yeah, it's closer than you think. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, not only is it closer than you think, there, there's fundamentally nothing that is not it. And yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's like the inside of our eyelid is so close to us, we can't even see it. Um, <laughs> and so any, um, Claire, any, any tips and suggestions uh, uh, for cultivating these states? Um, you mentioned, obviously, working with meditation. Yeah, and, I mean, right? yeah. yeah. Any, uh, Sorry, yes. No, go ahead. Any any other things you can say about this? this is such a rich arena. Any other tips you can share with our listeners about how they can access these extraordinarily blissful dimensions? Yeah, I mean, I think on the very sort of pragmatic everyday level is um, look for beauty and look mm. for luminosity in your life and mm. uh, and see where, where does it happen for you? Does it happen when you're in a particular place? It may be in nature. Uh, or does it happen when you're just drifting off to sleep that you get this luminosity? Um, try and recognize that um, and, and go towards it. And in any dream you have about anything, whether you're lucid in the dream or not, move towards the light. If you're in a dream and there's a particularly vibrant uh, animal or dream figure or plant, or if there's a, a luminous lake, anything like that, reflections, mirrors, move towards the light in your dreams. And that becomes a habit. This is one of the ways that I developed the habit was just to just to go towards that. Um, 
in every state of consciousness, not just in lucid dreams, uh, can be non-lucid dreams, can be in the hypnagogic state, can be, of course, in the waking state, um, in meditation. You know, just, just familiarize yourself with it because it's part of you and it's there all the time and it's not as, as distant as, as it may seem. Yeah, and it's very interesting. Again, you know, the, the very word familiarize is the way meditation is translated in, in, in that language. The word is transliterated. Mm -hmm. Gom, G-O-M, it literally means, Claire, it literally means to become familiar with. Wow. So, so what we're talking about here is exactly that, that one can become increasingly familiar with these states by sensitizing ourselves towards their manifestation and waking reality. And then so that when, you know, again, it's this beautiful bi-directional thing that we do it in the day, we'll do it at night, we do it at night, then we'll do it in the day. Um, and it's, you know, literally, literally illuminating. And so... So then, obviously, the next step is the void and its relationship to this light. And the final practice of, of what um, my tradition refers to as, as bardo yoga, um, how, mm -hmm. these, how these practices and experiences can be um, used to prepare for death. Um, because, again, in, in the Tibetan view, dream yoga came about principally as a way to prepare for death. And, and they even refer to death literally as the dream at the end of time. And, and, and I find this so compelling, Claire, because very often when people have, you know, I teach a lot on death and dying, Bharata Yoga, people often, often say, you know, where, where do I go when I die? Where, mm -hmm. you know, where yeah. what will be my next destination? And I, I will say, you know what? You're simply transitioning from one dream to the next. I mean, we, we are in a yeah. dream, right? We're in a dream right now. We just don't know it. We simply reify this experience and make it non-dreamlike principally out of fear, but fundamentally mm -hmm. when, when, this, when this dream dissolves, we just simply dissolve into a different dream. And so yes. if that is in fact the case, and the Buddha, you know, as you know, the ultimate lucid dreamer, the awakened one, this is what he woke up to, that we're, we're as my teacher, Trungpa Mache, so beautifully put it once, he said, you know, the bad news is we're falling through space without a parachute. The good news is there is no ground. And so we're we're basically we're basically just cascading like a like an endless recursive dream with infinite. Yeah, false that's a very dreamlike image. <laughs> yeah, with with infinite false awakenings, um, with fundamentally there is no ground, and and this of course is the void. Um, and if we then realize that oh my gosh, we're just transitioning from one dream to the next, that mm -hmm. both both empowers the dreaming state and then simultaneously kind of disempowers the waking reified state. But but let's talk. I'd, I'd love to pick your mind about your experience with the void and how you use your nocturnal practice to, to help you and others to uh, prepare for the dream at the end of time. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you use the word transition or transitioning so so often just, just then because I always think about how important it is to stay aware during every transition from one state of consciousness to another so my view is that we can actually get to practice conscious dying for example i mean not just during uh, dream yoga but also when we stay awake while we fall asleep yep. or when we're we're experiencing hypnagogic imagery and we're surfing it lucidly and when we're lucid in dreams as well, or when we're in the lucid void, we can also practice that conscious dying. Or when we have an out-of-body experience, or when we have a lucid light experience, or when we meditate in waking life so deeply that we no longer feel the body. 
So there are all these different transitional states of consciousness. And when we practice staying awake and aware during those transitions, then we're practicing for conscious dying. I mean, the void is is fantastic because it's a space of infinite creative potential. So if you're in the the void, I mean, maybe you'll just see darkness. Maybe for the first few times, you'll just see darkness. Um, But if you're floating in this, what feels like an infinite black space, after a time, you'll notice the luminosity. It's everywhere. You'll notice that coming. You can have um, black light, you know. We always think black is just black and it's dark, but it's not. It's um, It can be just as luminous. Um, okay. And so in that state, when you're – it's very easy, actually, to stay – lucidly aware in the void which is which is interesting you know it's not a thing where you're like oh i I can't seem to stay lucid oh i'm losing my focus there's nothing to focus on really you know (laughs) you're just there you're just aware and um and it can be incredible to see the things that arise you can watch whole dreams being formed you can see the building blocks of dreams and it's very good then to just practice yes staying lucidly aware and just observing and i think that is a good practice uh for death uh and for what comes for what comes after after we die you know just recognizing okay yeah this is all happening there's all these things going on but um i'm not going to get too sucked in i'm just uh i'm just lucidly aware you know uh so i think that this is a way of uh, being able to practice for death um and generally meditating in any state of consciousness you can meditate in the lucid void that's um that's a wonderful practice you can meditate in a regular lucid dream or well or while you're awake of course um and i think this really helps us just to just to retain that conscious awareness, let it expand and become vast, you know. Don't make it be like a narrow little cliff path or, or a tightrope that you're trying to balance on. Let it expand because it will, it, it can just expand effortlessly. And then you have your your platform, you have your awareness, this vast awareness, and it's no longer hard to retain that awareness. And the more often you experience this very broad very focused awareness uh i mean i believe that's that's a practice for conscious dying that's right yeah are you sure you're not like some tibetan mahasiddha i mean like the stuff, the stuff. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> no I, i'm telling you you are my dear i mean the stuff you're saying is just i, I mean i'm so inspired by what you're sharing here and, and i mean again it's just another one of these nod fests you know my my what you're saying here is <laughs> This is exactly what Bardo Yoga is about. Is Bardo, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, is a Tibetan word that means gap, um, in between transitional process, and it right. is exactly what you're talking about. It's 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 fundamentally the way to attain attain awareness, which of course is just a code word for lucidity across any yeah. state. And and so it, we we've been talking about how lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. Well, it also leads to lucid dying, and the same phenomenology that takes place in the dream state according to the tibetan yoga teachings what's called the the karmic bardo becoming what they say there claire is that um if one can maintain lucidity with some constancy in the dream state and of course you can do if you can do this in the sleep state you've already won the game but if you can maintain some regular constancy in the dream state you're insured through the power of habituation you know not all habits are bad this is a good habit it's called good karma then you will attain that same type of lucidity in, in the bardos. And then just like in a, a transformation from a lucid, non-lucid to a lucid dream, the biggest problem after death, the bardo teachings say, is not realizing that you're dead. It's a little bit like the movie Sixth Sense. And, and, yeah. and, and just like in a transforming a 
non-lucid dream to a lucid one by transforming a non-lucid Bardo experience, the dream of the end of time, into a lucid Bardo experience, now you have control over processes that previously just had control over you. Because if you don't, just like in a lucid dream, or I should say even non-lucid, if you don't take control over your dream, what is it that controls you? Well, your habits. And so, again, <laughs> the master of the one-liner, you know, my teacher, Vajadara, said uh, in response to the question, you know, again, what is it that reincarnates? He beautifully said, your bad habits. And so what, what, what will take rebirth, as it does every night, again, the measure of the path, is your bad habits. And so by becoming lucid in the dream, that proficiency naturally extends into the karmic bardo becoming, we can wake up in the bardo, transform that into a lucid dying experience. And according to these teachings, then um, not only do you just uh, transform the mind, you end up eventually can actually form and then um, dictate the, the entire trajectory of the Bardo experience and dictate where you will be reborn and all that kind of thing. So um, how has this, oh, let me say this to our readers, or listeners, I should say, the void is, is one of the most challenging um, terms. And in, in Buddhism, it's referred to as emptiness, which I'm sure is not a whole lot better. Um, that gives you a lot of comfort. I prefer, you know, to me, Claire, I, I, I like the more effective component of, of openness. That, that what is fundamentally void is is not this kind of absolute nihilistic dissolution of everything. Everything, everything constituted a form, i.e., in, in, in this case, particularly ego, that's what the void is void of. It's void of your limited, pinched, kind of contracted, constipated sense of self. And when that void is actually experienced, and I, I think this needs to be emphasized, this is where it dovetails beautifully to what we were talking about earlier, the experience is, is tremendously blissful because this primordial cramp of the mind, this primordial contraction of the mind that fundamentally contracts us literally into physical form is released. And that's orgasmic. It's just like, OMG, this is the great cosmic release. And so I, I think that needs to be tossed into the mix so that when people yeah. hear and think about the void and they think about emptiness, they go, ah, I don't want to go into the <laughs> void. Well, your ego may not want to go there, but your spirit does, because that's what oh, your yeah. spirit that's what your spirit is. And so how has this, and again, this is almost a stupid question, but how has this change um, transformed your relationship to the end of life and to death? I mean, how, how has it touched you personally? Yeah, well, I think um, for me, I mean, it's, it's made me understand on a very deep level that... Uh, that death is only another transition, you know, like falling asleep or like going into a medita meditative state while we're awake, you know, any kind of transition in consciousness. And I, I believe that, that death is a, a transition in that sense and, um, and that we continue uh, and we return to the light. Um, so for me, it's, I, I feel very close to death and I'm not scared of my own death. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, I love life. I really love being alive. I, I really enjoy life. I wake up happy every day, and uh, oh, it's just so interesting being alive. Um, but I'm also very fascinated by, yeah. by death, and I, and I think it's going to be really exciting and amazing, and it feels like, it feels like I've done it before. <laughs> you know, it feels like yeah. it's going to be very familiar. 
um, and, and extremely amazing and, and, and full of light. I think it will be a luminous yep. experience, nothing to be yep. scared of. Yep. Uh, so so I, for me, it's taken away the fear of death and... Uh, yep. Yeah, it makes me feel very hopeful. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, really, you know, they say the highest practitioners actually look forward to the moment of death, not in a suicidal way, because they know they, <laughs> something, they, know they have something to look forward to. And, and right. when you talk about, again, in, in kind of the Tibetan Thanatological literature, when they talk about the actual moment of death, it's literally referred to as the luminous bardo of Dhammata. I mean, you're, you're mm. actually dissolving into the nature of mind. And so I have to toss yeah. in this. This quote from from one of the great masters of the age, you know, Dumbledore, right? You know, from yes. Harry Potter, where, <laughs> yes. where, where he says, um, you know, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. And yeah. um, to me, that, that's exactly what all these teachings have done. And this is why, you know, I, I often talk, Claire, about these nocturnal practices as being a form of stealth help, you know, that there's more going on than meets the outbound mind, you know, that, that there's layer upon layer of these deeper teachings. And so when I have deeply found, and this is why my teachings on Bardo Yoga are completely resonant and confluent with my teachings and, and understanding of both dream yoga and sleep yoga, is that we're simply working with mind um, as it's expressing itself and recycling through the extraordinarily subtle domains in, in several different iterative um, expressions. You know, one is the sleeping, dreaming, waking state, even if you're, you know, the other is this, the this, um, dying, um, living, dying re, uh, rebirth trajectory. And then even more subtle is if one's awareness is, is at such a refined level, we can see this very process occurring with the arising, abiding, and cessation of every single thought. But I think I, I, it's a great way to, to start to close up um, our conversation because yeah. You know, fundamentally, the, there's so much more going on here than we may be aware of. And, and the applicability, the, the, the endless surprises that um, await these nocturnal um, explorers have just such tremendous profundity and applicability. I mean, it's not something that's just left in the darkness of the night. It's something that can profoundly, radically transform the way you relate to your life experience prepare you profoundly for the end of life, inform and transform the way you quite literally see things during the context of your life. And so um, as, as yeah. we start, any further comments along along those lines before we slowly start to? Oh, just to say, I guess just to say that I'm lucid dreaming and any lucid state uh, can be a source of great spiritual comfort. Um, I think it helps us to understand that we are all spiritual beings and uh, we can have we have direct knowledge of it when we have lucid dreams and we dissolve into the lucid light or we have other kind of transcendental sort of experiences then we can really understand on a deep level uh, for ourselves that um, it's all okay <laughs> we don't have to worry so much and everything will be all right it really will be all right there's no need to be fearful uh, it's it's all going to be good. You know, it's like a spiritual comfort to have these experiences. And I think that helps us to be stronger and face face life. Um, yeah, in an easier going way, you know, not getting so upset about things and worried. And um, it gives us some sort of strength. And I think that's important. Yeah. It, I mean, it really is a journey into the center of ourselves, isn't it? And, and that's yeah. where 
that's where we fundamentally go when, when we sleep and dream, and that's where we fundamentally go when, when we die. And the thing that's really struck me, I had a, a wonderful interview with an author you may know, James Kingsland. He's, he's about to release a da- dazzling book um, in August called oh. Am, I, Am I Dreaming, um, okay. which has a wonderful collection of, of data on, on lucid dreaming and the like. And so in this book, Great. what he does that, that I think is, is kind of connected here is that he he is showing now how these kind of psychotropic agents, psilocybin, LSD, and the like, are, are making a bit of a comeback, um, and that they're used in a really beautiful way to help people prepare for death, because these agents can dislodge this exclusive identification with form, with ego, mm-hmm. and, and that's what ego is. Ego is exclusive identification with form, and these agents yeah. can dislodge that and therefore expand our sense of identity and realize that there is something more foundational than this pinched form of awareness that will in fact die. And so to me, Clara, these these nocturnal practices have exactly that type of agency. We don't or that power I should say. We we mm-hmm. don't have to take psilocybin. The ultimate narcotic, right. ultimate, the ultimate drug, right, so to speak, is is you know the the natural um it's almost it's a natural high, yeah, exactly. The natural, exactly the natural high that that we can experience deep within us. And for me, um, in fact, as you know, when when great masters like Ramdas Swami, when Ramdas gave his guru twenty five hits of orange sunshine, you know, of acid, mm-hmm. basically, but basically the Lama said, well, you know, like now what? So in other words, it didn't face him, it didn't touch him at all. Right. He was he was already kind of operative in, in that domain, and so. I think that's when the stability of these mind states and practices have just tremendous applicability. Um, and so to, to end with a couple, just one one or two really practical things, and then I want people to hear about your work, how they can learn more about you and what you're doing. One of the biggest issues, I'm sure you know this very well from your own programs, and I always like to end with, with when I have such a gifted um, expert like yourself, one of the biggest challenges with lucid dreaming, of course, is working with discouragement. Um, people hear, you know, they hear these talks and they're super inspired and they, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I really want to do it. I really want to do it. And then, of course, you know, on one level, expectation is great, but on another level, expectation is premeditated disappointment. And so can you say a little bit, uh, give some words, again, some parental advice about how to work with discouragement, how to keep going um, when things get a little bit darker against you in these practices? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think one good thing is not get too attached to getting lucid, you know, because I, I often get people writing to me saying, I keep trying and I can't get lucid and what's wrong with me and all this. And um, I think it's nice to just give yourself a break, you know, be compassionate, uh, relax about it a little bit and then try something different. Um, and one of the things I'm doing in, in the book that I've just finished writing, which is coming out next year, The Art of Lucid Dreaming, is to with I have this like lucidity quiz and that helps people to understand the kind of uh, dreamer and sleeper that they are so mm-hmm. that they can then hone, they can decide like which practices are going to be the ones that are going to get them lucid um, more quickly because we all sleep and dream differently. I really see this through people writing to me via my website or asking me questions in my workshops and, you know, people say things like, I just can't get lucid. I fall asleep and, and I sleep um, like a log for for eight hours and then I wake up and and that's that no dreams and obviously if you're a deep sleeper you need to take a nap you know you've got to do an afternoon (laughs) nap 
<laughs> it's like it seems so simple, right? But people, it doesn't occur to them that that because they're a certain type of sleeper um, or a certain type of dreamer, it depends on their dream recall as well, that they can actually simply modify their practice. So it's really good to be able to to understand more deeply how you sleep and how you dream and and work out the right moments for you and the right techniques. Um, And another thing that I always say to people is um, you could try using your body as a lucidity trigger as well. You know, you could... um, and it's not much fun, but you could you could go to bed hungry. <laughs> and uh-huh. uh, every time I go to sleep a bit hungry, I have these dreams about eating loads of sweet foods, <laughs> like a, of discovering a, a banquet outside. And, and then that gets me lucid, you know, because you say to yourself before you sleep, if I find myself eating in my dream, I'll know that I'm, dream- I'm, that I'm dreaming. Uh, you could also do it with abstaining from orgasm. You know, if you haven't had sex for a while, you're more likely to dream about sex. So you could say, OK, the next time I find myself in an erotic situation, I will know that I'm dreaming. Um, and or you could set up a musical trigger in your bedroom. You know, pick a piece of music that's not too lively and listen to it during the day and and imbue it with your realization that you are dreaming right now. And then set that music to play while you sleep. I mean, all sorts of so many little tricks that we can do just to freshen things up. So don't get mechanical about your lucidity practice. That's the worst thing. Boredom is the biggest lucidity killer on the planet. So keep things fresh and exciting, and then your enthusiasm will come back, and uh, you know things will work. You'll start to get more lucid. That's fantastic. So would you recommend along those lines? I mean, there are now some apps you can get. Previously, you know, you had to do expensive sleep studies. I, I work with sleep disorders in my clinical practice, and, and we, we often prescribe overnights in labs, but now they're home, home sleep study um, apps and the like. Would you recommend, and have you ever worked with these sorts of things and, and actually constructing your own sleep architecture, you know, like actually having it graphically pointed out to you, like, you know, when, how much time are you spending in, in non-REM and REM and like really mm-hmm. determining your, your sweet spots? Have, have you done that? Would you recommend that kind of thing? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and again, that's what I talk about in the art of lucid dreaming is how to recognize, you know, when are you in REM sleep, when you're more likely to um, to wake up. We all have mi- like mini awakenings during the night as well. And if you set, if you use one of those apps um, to kind of uh, to, to trigger when you've had a, a certain amount of sleep, depending on how long your night of sleep is, again, it's also individual. You know, if, if you're someone who sleeps for nine hours, um, then you're going to want to set your app to go off at a different time in your sleep cycle than someone who only needs five hours of sleep. And there really are people who, who, who don't need much sleep out there. Um, so you've got to be able to personalize your lucidity uh, induction techniques for yourself, yeah. you know, and then yeah. anything can happen. It will really work. It, it, it can be very, very quick. You know, you just change one small thing and that's that. You know, I had yeah. one guy uh, write to me and saying, um, you know, I just can't seem to get lucid. I've read, I've read 40 books on lucid dreaming. It's not happening for me. And um, we had a whole sort of in-depth um, chat about it. And at the very end, as a kind of aside, he said, oh, I take melatonin every night. And I was like, yeah. oh, my goodness, you could have told me that at the beginning of our conversation. I said, why don't you stop taking the melatonin? You know, try it for like, you know, a few weeks or a month. Um, and he tried it. And of course, he got lucid again, because the melatonin was taking him too deep under. So, you know, some people, even though he was super aware and reading all these books, he wasn't thinking about this really simple, practical thing of he's popping this melatonin pill every day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that... It's surprising. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, again, just since I have such a resource with you here, 
what are your go-to methods? Like if you were in a lab and you absolutely positively had to have a lucid dream tonight, um, what would you do? I mean, where, what are you, what are your go-tos? <laughs> well, I mean, I've had a, a lot of lucid dreams and I, I tend to get lucid kind of without really trying a lot of the time. If I had to have one on a particular night, um, I would, it's kind of a silly technique really maybe for some people, but what I do is I lie down in bed and I close my eyes and then I shout out in my head, I shout out, dreaming mind, dreaming mind. I want to get lucid tonight. <laughs> That's oh, all right. I do. I, I just shout it really loudly in my head. Uh, I just say it to my dreaming mind. Um, and then that's the wonderful for me uh, that, that like my lucid dream figures will be like, this is a dreamy view, isn't it, Claire? And like, <laughs> give me a, a look and I'll be like, what? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So it is, you know, or else I'll be a dream researcher in my, in my dream or I'll be at a, one of the IASD dream conferences. You know, it will all start happening. My whole dreaming mind will conspire to get me lucid. And that is the beauty of it. When you have a really um, transparent uh, relationship with your dreaming mind, then it will help you to get lucid. You know, you're on the same page. It wants that. So for me, that's, you know, it's maybe a different um, case to some people. But, I mean, I, yeah, I just shout in my head. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> And so, and, and what is briefly? What is your view on, on like the supplements, like you know, galantamine and all these other ones out there? Yeah. Are you, what is your view? Do you endorse them? Do you think they're helpful or not helpful? Or, or have you ever tried oh, them? You know, I, I think they can be helpful for some people. Um, I've actually never tried them myself because um, over my whole lifetime, I've developed like natural techniques for becoming lucid in my dreams. But I don't have anything against them really you know I mean okay. maybe maybe one day if I if I wasn't having lucid dreams anymore maybe I would try something I, I haven't felt the need yet my, myself but I know that they they do work for, for some people and so yeah fine why not what's your yeah. view no same exactly why yeah. not you know I mean yeah. as long as as long as they're not damaging you and I've, mm. I've had I've had you know that's my one of my go-to's I've had tremendously good luck and, and my friend Stephen LaBerge and and mm -hmm. others, I thought I know Ryan Hurd has also done studies. If, if yeah, so, yeah. you know that this stuff really does work, and so as long as as long as the agents aren't damaging in any regard, I think to yeah. me, and, I, and I'm sure this is probably the way you work with the stuff, Claire. Is I, you know, there's so many different methods and techniques now, and very often, what I say to people is, we're all different. We we all have our idiosyncrasies and our sleep patterns. You know, the idea, don't be intimidated by all these techniques. Um, the idea really is is to find one way, to find one or two that are your sweet spot, and then that that can be your ticket in. You know, the point unless you're yeah. teaching, unless you're teaching this stuff, the point isn't to master all the techniques. The point is to find your sweet spot, and then let that let that take you exactly. home. Exactly, exactly. Get to know yourself better and what yeah. you need and what works for you. It's just a journey of discovery, isn't it? So, isn't it? Yeah, all the way, Perfect. all the way across. Wow. And so as we start to round this up, and oh, we have to bring you back on because i'm I mean, even though we've, we've talked about some awesomely cool stuff there's so much more to discuss so tell yeah. us Claire, tell us a little bit about um you know how people can reach you obviously we'll we'll put up your links and everything on our site but like what you're working on um how people can reach you especially your your these incredible programs that you're doing in europe and i do i, I do have to say to our listeners that that claire's books are extraordinarily well written they're researched beautifully. They, they bring a comprehensiveness and a rigor that really speaks to me. And so I, I, I recommend your work unconditionally. And so, thank you. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, truly, you know, your your expertise, your heart, your kindness, um, just really radiates through your words. And so, tell tell our, our peeps how they can learn more about you, um, what you're sure. currently working on. Yeah. So, uh, well, basically, you can reach me via my website, which is deeplucidreaming.com. Um, and there's a contact page. You can write to me if you want to share an experience. Oh, and also, I'm writing a book on nightmares right now. Just started it. And um, if anyone who's listening has any nightmares or any kind of negative sleep experiences, like sleep paralysis experiences, anything else that they would like to share for my book, I would really love to hear from you. Um, I've already got some great accounts coming in, but I, I believe that these these things bring the book to life. You know, it helps readers to um, to hear how other people are experiencing their, their whole world of sleep and dreams. Um, so, yeah, the Nightmare Book is my latest project. And I also run Lucid Dreaming Ocean Retreats. Uh, and the next one's in October in Portugal. Oh, and that's just heavenly. It's so beautiful there. Have you been to Portugal, Andrew? You know, I, I've been through virtually every other country in Europe, but I have not been to Portugal. So I'll, I'll have oh. to come to one of your gigs. Yeah, here it's great. Yeah, huh? come to one of mine and I'll come to one of yours. Okay. <laughs> so it's There's amazing deal. too. There's a deal. <laughs> I'd love to okay. meet you. It'd be really nice to meet you, uh, you know, kind of face to face. And um, I don't know, we seem to have quite a, quite a common path in many ways. Yeah. So it's always so, a pleasure. Um, yeah. yeah, so basically that's it. I mean, in terms of contacting me, it's my website, and then Andrew's going to put up a, a link with um, For sure. my biography or whatever. So, yeah, I'm always happy to hear from people. Yeah, yeah, for sure, um, Claire. Oh my gosh, I I feel like I've just connected to a lost, long soulmate. I mean, what a yeah. rich, warm, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful conversation. Really, it's such Truly. a delight for me. And it really, I you know, I've been doing this for I mean, how many decades now? And still to connect with someone with your expertise, your your heart, your knowledge, it inspires me. I mean, I leave this thing going, wow, I mean, look at look at all the other new things I can now start to explore. And so, and that's, <laughs> well, I'm that's so inspired really- by you. I mean, it's amazing. I really feel the depth of your knowledge, and it's, it's lovely. I feel like, yeah, you, you seem like a really beautiful soul <laughs> with uh, a kind I, heart. <laughs> you're, so, you're very sweet, it, it, completely um, reciprocated. And so, you know, it's really mm-hmm. much, very much in the spirit of what we're doing with our developing venture here called Nightclub, which is to develop this kind of sense of, of greater community and camaraderie to realize that, you know, yes, we're weird, but we're not weird alone. Yeah. We're, weird, we're weird together. And as, I mentioned, <laughs> and as I mentioned in earlier notes, especially in my conversation with James Kingland, you know, we, we are leading the edge of human evolution. So, but we all know that, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Just a minor thing. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, to share, yeah. to share it in this international community that there are some exquisitely sensitive role models that we can emulate because that one of the biggest issues is there are I mean there are no role models in the West and so to, to make right. luminaries like yourself more available is, is certainly inspiring to me and I'm, I'm sure it will be to our um, club so Claire I cannot thank you enough for the generosity of your time I know how busy you are and to give this up and, and to spend time with me and, and my group means a, a tremendous amount to me and, and truly I look forward to future um, uh, interviews with you and I'm, I'm actually um, kind of sparked by this idea of, you know, I'll, I'll come to Portugal, you come to Sedona. And uh, I think we could really we could really have a, a, a jolly good time with it all. So, dear friend, thank you so much, Claire. Well, really thank you. Well. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed myself. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, likewise. And, and uh, we'll 
definitely stay in touch for future adventures. For sure, yeah. Okay, all right, bye. Take care. Bye.